0: My name is Greg Boyd. I'm the senior pastor here at Wilderness Church, and it's really good to be in the presence of God. I feel the presence of God here this morning and His love in a very particular way. uh, And um, I think God's got something really great in store for us. If you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Luke. Surprise, surprise, surprise. Luke chapter 7. Very astute of you. Uh, This is what we do here. We just study the Bible, and we're studying the book of Luke for a very long time. We've been doing this, and we're up to chapter 7. And I want to entitle this message, The Compassion That Heals. This is one of those messages where one of my four points turned into the whole point. And it happened on Friday. Just sort of boom, all of a sudden it just sort of evolves that way. And what's really interesting to me is that the one point that it evolved into is the point we've been singing about and praying about all morning long. And the worship team had no idea about what was happening on my end when they put the song set together. And we've really sensed a uh, uh, kind of a special anticipation and anointing as we've prayed about this service this weekend. So I want you to really have an open heart and attentive mind as we're just uh, talking about the compassion of God that heals. Here's the narrative. It says, Soon afterward, that's after Jesus had healed the centurion's servant that we talked about last week. Right away, Jesus went to a town called Nain. And his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. Nain was just a, a small town in southwest Gal- south, uh, or in southern Galilee, about 20 miles southwest of Capernaum, where Jesus was just at. And a large crowd follows him for those 20 miles. Luke had earlier said a, large, or a crowd followed Jesus. Now he says a large crowd. So we get this impression that the more Jesus is ministering, the more people are coming around him. Jesus' ministry wasn't done in private. It was very, very public. People knew about him. And his reputation is growing and growing. So Jesus, with his entourage, heads towards this small town in uh, southern Galilee. As he approached the town gate, where you enter the city, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother. And she, it turns out, was a widow. In the ancient Jewish world, they had ceremonial laws about how far away grave sites had to be from the city. You couldn't bury a person in the city. Uh, Laws about uh, a distance had to be kept between uh, corpses and live people. So they're taking this corpse outside of the city into the graveyard. And Jesus is entering the city just as they're leaving the city. And that's what sets up this uh, beautiful encounter. A large crowd from the town was with this woman. And that was very typical of small towns. The whole town mourned together with whoever was suffering this loss. And when the Lord saw this widow, who had just lost her son, his heart went out to her. The word there is just the Greek word for compassion or intense compassion. His heart went out to her. And he said, don't cry. Apparently she was wailing. And then he went up and touched the buyer they were carrying him on. And the bearers stood still. So there's this woman weeping, crying, wailing. Uh, We know in the ancient world, uh, they usually buried the person the day that they died. Because in the Mediterranean climates, especially in the summertime, uh, people decompose rather quickly, so the burials had to be really quick. And so this woman's pain is fresh. This just happened to her. She's raw, if you will, raw with this kind of pain. Jesus sees this and his heart mourns for her. He has compassion towards her. her his heart goes out to her. and, he, and So he, he interrupts the, the funeral procession and he touches the, the buyer where the, uh, uh, the corpse is laid. That was just an open casket. And the funeral procession stops. Maybe one of the reasons it stopped is that there was a law that forbid, forbade that happening. You were never supposed to touch uh, the... Uh, uh, the buyer that a corpse was laid on. But Jesus, as we've seen repeatedly in the book of Luke, is perfectly willing to break social and religious taboos uh, if, uh, if it's done in the, in, in the interest of love or in the interest of uh, humanizing people or furthering the kingdom. And so the whole processional stops. And they're staring at this guy who has got the audacity to interrupt this funeral. But Jesus says to the young man, he goes, Young man, I say to you, get up. He just speaks to the corpse. And the dead man, or the dead boy, sat up and began to talk. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. One of the ways you know that the the New Testament record is authentic is that they include historical details that are surprising. The kind of thing that a person wouldn't make up. And here's a surprising detail. This kid comes to life and the first thing he does is he starts chattering. He starts chattering away. And maybe the kid was like that. You know, normally he was just a chatterbox. Maybe he died in the middle of a conversation. I don't know what, how it went. But he wakes up and he just starts yapping about, we don't know what the weather, you know, or what a cool experience that was. Or, you know, I don't know what he was talking. But he starts yapping. You wouldn't expect that. Uh, he's talking. And then apparently the people carrying, uh, carrying him put him on the ground. And then Jesus helps him out of the, the casket and tenderly re- reunites him, it says, reunites him with his mother from whom he'd been separated Uh, During this time of death, well, the people were filled with awe and they praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. This news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. These folks are Jews, and so their main frame of reference is the Old Testament. And the only time they've ever heard of anyone being raised from the dead, being resuscitated, uh, was in the case of Elijah and Elisha, the prophets in the Old Testament. And so what they're seeing in Jesus is a parallel to Elijah and Elisha. So of course they say he's a great prophet, just like Elijah and Elisha. Of course he's more than a prophet, but they don't really know that yet. But there's kind of a, a hint that they know something else is going on because they say God has visited his people. God has come to uh, help his people. And they're speaking more truth when they say that than they could have possibly have, have realized. Maybe part of what is tipping them off that something even more than a great prophet is, is, is someone even more than a a great prophet is present here is the fact that Jesus, the prophets, they, they talk to God and God heals the people and restores the people. Elijah and Elisha talk to God and the kids are resuscitated. But Jesus doesn't do that. It's one of the fascinating features about Jesus. It's one of the evidences of his divinity. He just talks to the dead kid. He speaks life into the dead boy, and the boy comes to life. So they're aware that, yes, he is a great prophet, but there's something more than a great prophet uh, that, that, that's going on here. Uh, I want to center on the compassion of Jesus, as evidenced by this passage. And so there's one more passage I want to read. This is really the passage that is the quintessential expression of God in the Old Testament, as he's revealing himself to Moses as part of the Old Covenant. And, and Moses wants to see God, and God says this. Exodus 33, verse 19. And the Lord said, I will cause my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. My name is the Lord, and I'll proclaim it in your presence. And what you'll know about me, Moses, is this. I am a God who has mercy, on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion, on whom I will have compassion. God reveals himself, even in the Old Testament, as being a God of mercy and a God of compassion. Pray with me here for a moment. Father, I pray in Jesus' name and by the power of your Spirit that you would reveal yourself as the compassionate, merciful, unfathomably loving God that you are. Unfathomable loving God that you are. and Father, confront all conceptions of you that we have that don't agree with that. I pray, Lord God, that your love would be revealed and penetrate us and heal us. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Some of you folks who have been around for a while know that um, on occasion I have little disagreements with traditional theology. On occasion. Uh, That's certainly true of what is called, uh, of the, the, the kind of the traditional theological view of God in church history. What is sometimes called the classical view of God. I think it's off on some ways. One of the ways I think it's most profoundly off, the classical view of God, is that in classical theology, one of God's attributes was was called his impassibility. It was believed that God was above emotion. He's so great, he doesn't have emotion. He doesn't have passions like we do. The word impassibility means no pathos. And the word pathos means emotion or passion. And so the traditional theological view has been that God is above emotions. God is above having passions. They thought that because they saw that to have emotions means that you're impacted by somebody else. You have an emotion as a response to something outside of yourself. And oddly, in the church tradition, they thought that that means, that that that, that shows a sign of dependency, which is weakness. And so God God, since he's perfect, can't be dependent on anything outside of himself, even for his experience of the world. And, uh, uh, and nothing influences God. Nothing impacts God, so God doesn't have emotions. They also thought that if you have emotions, that means that you change. You have an emotion, then you don't have an emotion. And, then you, you know, and, and that shows that there's an emotional cha- a st- a change of state in God. And they thought God was un- absolutely unchanging. This is what's called the immutability of God. Unchanging not just in the perfection of his character, and his qualities, but unchanging even in his experience. So the church tradition has denied that God has emotion, that God experiences passion. You don't find this anywhere in the Bible, but you find it all over the place in Greek philosophy. For a lot of reasons that I can't go into right now, I'm working, I'm working on a project on this, I've been doing it for eight years, studying the influence of Greek philosophy on the early church. And the Greek philosophers, for a lot of reasons, just thought that something is perfect to the degree that it experiences no change whatsoever. Probably the quintessential expression of this is Plato in his famous book, The Republic. Plato says that that which is perfect cannot change at all. Because that which is perfect can't be improved, because it's perfect. And that which is perfect can't be lessened, because it's perfect. And all change, he argues, is either for the better or for the worse. And since the perfect can't be made better or or worse, the perfect can never change. As I've studied all these ancient documents in the early church, you see that argument repeated over and over and over and over again throughout the ancient philosophers and then throughout the early church fathers, and it drives me nuts. It's a bad argument. Who says that all change must either make you better or make you worse? Why can't some change just be appropriate change? In fact, why can't some change, rather than being the negation of perfection, why can't some change be an expression of perfection? Let me give you an example. Suppose I'm a perfect human being. It's not much of a stretch, I know. Uh, I, I've got, uh, you know, just perfect love, perfect love. And I'm walking down the street and I'm having a perfect day, so I'm, I'm, I'm whistling zippity doo zippity-day, happiest can be. And I come upon a woman who just lost her child. Her, her child just died, and she's wailing in pain. Now, if I remain unchanged in my emotional state, are you gonna, still going to think I'm a perfect human being? Oh, this doesn't faze me at all. I'm just happy. (laughs) Even that can't touch me. That's not a sign of perfection. That's a sign of being pathological. There's something seriously wrong with you if you're not impacted by this. If I'm a perfect human being and therefore have perfect love, my emotional state will be adjusted to her emotional state. I'll enter into her pain. What's going on with another human being is going to impact me to the degree that I am perfect. Precisely because I'm unchanging in my character I will change in my experience to relate to this woman. I submit to you that God is absolutely unchanging in terms of his character. He doesn't get better or get worse or anything of the sort. But precisely because he's unchanging, his emotional state is adjusted to what is actually going on in the world. You read the Bible and you find a God who's anything but impassable. This is a God who's full of passion and full of emotion. He, he's got extreme joy, he gets really angry, he gets discouraged, he's got grief, he's disappointed in things, he sings, he dances, he claps his hands. This is a God who's got a lot of emotion. And you, you know what? We're made in his image. What worries me, it means it's okay to be emotional. No, it's not okay to not control your emotions, and some of us got to work on that. But see, if, you're, if your idea of God is sort of this you know Caesar stoic deity looking down with indifference on the world, now... Since you're made in his image, that's what you'll think being a perfect human being is. And I submit to you that that's not at all the case. God is not a God above emotion. How do you ever get a God, an unchanging God, out of the Bible when the Bible tells us that the word was made flesh, for crying out loud? Something new happened to God. He became a human being. And how do you get a God who has no emotions out of the Bible when the Bible over and over again talks about God having all these emotions? And how do you get a God who's above, supposedly above, emotion out of the Bible when Jesus is our, is our representative of who God is and Jesus has emotion, Jesus shows compassion in this instance. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one knows the Father except through me. He says, if, if you, if you uh, see me, you see the Father, John 14. So that means what he's saying there is if you want to know what God is like, don't go to Plato. Plato's smart, he's got a lot of good things to say, but don't go to him to find out what God is like. Don't go to Greek philosophy at all to find out what, what God is like. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus Christ and keep your eyes fixed right there. And you know what? Jesus Christ has compassion on a woman who just lost her son. That tells me that God has compassion. God experiences emotion. He's not impassable. And if that makes me if that makes me a heretic, then all you who clapped are heretics with me. So praise God. I'm not alone. So here's Jesus. He's the representative of God. He shows us what God is like. And he comes upon this woman who just lost her only son. Her only son died. I've never lost a child. Some of you have. And I'll just tell you, I can't imagine a grief that would be greater than that. I can't, I can't enter that world. I don't know how, I don't know how you deal. I, you know, I just don't know how you deal with that. Um, it, th- I can't imagine a pain worse than that. And this woman is in the midst of that pain. But to make matters even worse... Uh, this was her only son, so far as we know, her only child. To make matters even worse, she'd already lost her husband, so the two loves of her life have been taken from her. And if that wasn't bad enough, you need to understand that in the first century, ancient Palestine, for a woman to not have any man to support her was, was in all probability, for that woman to go destitute. It was such a patriarchal, male-dominated, structured society that there was really very, very little ways for, for women to support themselves. If you didn't have a wealthy father or some kind of inheritance coming to you or someone who would, who would take care of you, um, you're pretty much put out on the street, uh, you would become a beggar or you would become a prostitute. There's some jobs as servants you could get and spinsters and other things but those were hard to come by and you usually you had to know somebody. So in all probability this woman is not only facing earth world shattering pain, but she's facing a future that is absolute destitute and being impoverished. And if that wasn't bad enough, you need to know that in the first century, a wide, there was a widespread belief that when disaster happened, it was God punishing you. You even see that in the Gospels. When people start saying, well, God, oh, God's punishing you. And Jesus always rebukes that theology, but it was widespread in the ancient Jewish world. To lose a loved one was seen as being judged by God. This woman's lost not only her husband, but now she loses her only son. So there'll be a lot of people around her who are going to be wondering, what is wrong with you? And there'll be a social stigma on top of that. You're being judged by God. When Jesus meets this woman, and Jesus is our representative of what God is like, Jesus doesn't judge her. and Jesus makes it clear that God is not punishing her. Jesus' heart goes out to this woman, which reveals that God's heart was going out to this woman. Far from punishing this woman, God's heart was breaking for this woman. God's heart was breaking for the fact that she'd lost her son. God's heart was breaking for the fact that she'd lost her husband. God's heart was breaking for the loneliness that she was be, be, would be experiencing. God's heart was breaking for the dire situations that she, was, uh, she found herself in. God's heart was breaking because the world was never supposed to be this way. But because of the fall and the curse and the oppression of the enemy, it is this way, and it breaks the heart of God. We need to grab hold of this compassionate aspect of God's heart. Get in on it and and, and become convinced that it is true. See this woman coming out of Nain with her son, her dead son now. God would love this woman and have compassion on this woman as though she were his only daughter. Because God's love is perfect. There's no limit to God's love. So it doesn't get spread thin when, because it's got a lot of pe- he's got a lot of people to love. He loves every person as though they were the only person. If you were the only one who existed, God wouldn't love you more. So God's heart towards this woman is, is his heart towards his only daughter. She is the apple of his eye. And his heart breaks for her because of the pain that she's in. Those of us who are parents... For any length of time, I'm sure, have learned the meaning of parental compassion. When your kid goes through something that's very, very painful, you feel the pain. It is as though it's happening to you. In fact, maybe it's even a little harder because it's not happening to you and you wish it was happening to you. Your heart associates with your child. That's what a a healthy, loving parent does. And God is the perfect parent. Several years ago, I know I mentioned this story several years ago, but my, my daughter and, and uh, son-in-law uh, got this cute little dog, just the cutest little dog in the world, and they fell in love with this precious little puppy, and it was cute and playful. And for about six weeks or so, maybe two months, you know, they had the puppy and bonded with the puppy and were just so close to this puppy and excited about this puppy. And then you know, the, 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 the puppy's jaw started shir- quivering in an odd way, and then the puppy began to have trouble walking. And we took it to the vet, and it had some disease. I forget what it was. But, but um, my wife and I were there with my daughter when the veterinarian came in and said, I'm sorry, you, your dog has to be put to sleep. And that was one brutal moment. I, my daughter just loved this dog, and she, her heart was breaking. And, and I, 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 we loved the dog, you know. It was such a cute dog, and now it's gonna, we have to put it down. And I, just, I and my wife could just so empathize with my daughter's pain in that moment. But in some ways, I think our pain might have been worse because not only were we mourning this dog, but we're mourning our daughter mourning the dog. And I would have given anything to make it my dog and not her dog. You see, I would enter into that. And I'm an imperfect parent. God is, God's parental love and compassion is infinitely better than mine. So I think God's heart was breaking for my daughter at that time. God, because he's perfect, because he's unchanging in his perfect character, His heart is impacted by what goes on in our life, the big things and the little things. He's on the inside of the pain. He's on the inside of the concerns. He's on the inside of the worry. He's on the inside, if this is what happens, He's on the inside of the the, the nightmare. God has a parental heart for you, and that means His heart is perfectly compassionate. I'll tell you why this is such an important thing for me. I don't know, honestly, if I could be a believer if I didn't believe this about God. Um, I, I became a Christian my senior year in high school, and then I lost my faith my first year in college. Uh, and, it, and Then I started you know, trying to get it back for the next couple of years, and it was a slow process. Obviously, it finally happened, but uh, right when I was beginning to reconsider Christianity, because my life was so empty and I was in such despair, and I was just in my course of my thinking, thinking that you know, there's got to be a God. There has to be a God. And I was working through that whole thing. But one of the major obstacles I had to overcome to come back to faith was the problem of evil. There's a lot of issues, but a major one was the problem of evil. And at this period, uh, this is like around 1977 as I recall, um, there was a show on television, some of you saw it, it was a, like four or five part series called The Holocaust. And it was just an eye-opening uh, expose on what happened during the Holocaust. It really made an impact on me. Uh, this is also, uh, right around this time I saw the movie Sophie's Choice. Some of you seen that movie? Uh, one of the most gut-wrenching movies I've ever seen in my life. Maybe maybe the most gut-wrenching, depressing movie I've ever seen in my life. But it's about a, uh, a woman who, in a concentration camp, has to, is forced by a Nazi guard to choose which of her children she's going to have uh, them take away to the gas chambers. Unthinkable, unthinkable. And, and we know that that kind of thing sometimes happened in these concentration camps. And I'm being just so impacted by this. At the same time, I'm taking a class in Hebrew. And most of the kids in this class are Jewish. And as this TV series is going on, they're talking about some of the stories of their grandparents who came out of Dachau or Auschwitz. So I'm getting impacted by the Holocaust. It really was the beginning of what became kind of an obsession of mine because that period just so incarnates satanic evil. It's got its, I'm just fascinated by the depth of evil that was there and the pain that was there. And I'm wondering to myself, how could a universe that supposedly was created by an all-good, all-powerful, all-loving, and all-wise God possibly produce something that is this nightmarishly ugly, this diabolical? Where was God when Sophie had to make this choice? And so I'm thinking there can't be a God. But there's other parts of me that are saying there's got to be a God. I remember I was up on the top of a building uh, studying for an astronomy class, and we're looking through these telescopes at the moons of Jupiter while our professor is, is pontificating about all these facts about the universe and how big it is, and, and, it was, and, and that was blowing my mind. All the billions of galaxies, each with billions of stars. And since that time, we've learned that the universe is actually five times bigger than we thought it was back then. There's five times as many galaxies. But even just what I was hearing there was blowing my mind, and I was thinking, there's got to be a God. There's got to be a God. This can't all be by accident. And the fact that we can even think about this with reason there's got to be an explanation for that. It's got to be rational. So I was thinking, there's got to be a God. But then I was looking at the problem of evil, and I was thinking, there can't be a God. And that night, I remember walking home, walking to the parking lot at the University of Minnesota, and my brain was a veritable ping-pong ball going back and forth between there's got to be a God and there can't be a God. Think of the stars, there's got to be a God. Think of Sophie's having to make that choice, there can't be a God. Think of the intricacy of the human brain. There's got to be a God. Think of all the kids that got gassed in, in gas chambers. There can't be a God. There's got to be a God. There can't be a God. There's got to there be, there be. There can't be. There can't be. There can't be. I was going nuts. I got to my car. And I was just opening the car. And I don't know how much of this I said or how much I thought. It's really blurry to me. But I remember I looked up to the sky. And I thought and said this. The only way I can possibly believe in you is if you know what it's like firsthand as though it happened to you to be a mother who has to choose which of her two children are going to be taken to a gas chamber. If you know the horror and the nightmare of that from the inside, only then can I, can I believe in you. And if you know the horror, the unthinkable nightmare of being the five-year-old who wasn't chosen, being ripped out of her mother's arms, if you're up there as some kind of stoic Caesar deity looking down with indifference on the mess that you help make, the nightmare that is this, this existence, then I have a moral obligation not to believe in you. Nietzsche was right. Only if you are on the inside of the nightmare that is often human existence, only then can I believe in you. And I remember I got in the car, turned on the car, and the minute I turned on the car, I got, I got a revelation. And I think it was the Holy Spirit doing this. Where I all of a sudden, like, heard a word, and the word was simply this, what do you think the cross is all about? What do you think the cross is all about? The cross shows a God who's, who is diving in completely into the, the mess of humanity, the hell of, of humanity, the pain of humanity, the cross shows the heart of God as God enters into solidarity with the worst that humanity has to offer. Christianity is the only faith that teaches us that God is on the inside of human pain. The almighty God who created the universe who put the stars out there and holds every molecule in existence right now, that God is not above entering into our pain, entering into our existence, experiencing life as the nightmare that it sometimes is. He could have easily stayed in the bliss of his glory, but instead he dives in to the hell of human existence on the cross. If we are moved by compassion when we see people suffer, especially loved ones suffer, how much more does God, how much infinitely more does God enter into and have compassion for people who suffer? Because God has a perfect love in contrast to our imperfect love. Here's a photo that was shown uh, the day after Memorial Day. It, it was on the front page of the New York Times. I'm sure some of you saw this. And when I, when I first saw this, it just ripped my heart apart. In fact, I downloaded it on, on my own website, and uh, I just titled this, Why I Hate War, because this just breaks my heart. This young lady, is, uh, she was to be engaged to the man who was killed. He was serving in Iraq, and he had, I think, uh, just two or three months left. And as soon as he came home, they were to be married. And so three months before their marriage, he, he ends up being killed. And this is her on a grave, uh, just mourning this loss, trying to find a way to let go, trying to find a way to let go of the dreams, all the dreams and the hopes and aspirations and joy that she had with this man. And I, I don't know her, but I look at that and just, it, my heart goes out to this woman, I'm sure I speak on behalf of all of us. Now, we are imperfect lovers, and we don't know this woman. How much more does God, who knows this woman perfectly and sees her as his only daughter, how does his heart break for her right there? How much more does he enter into where she's at? I can can easily imagine Jesus in that same posture laying down right alongside of her, wailing right alongside of her. I'm sorry that the world, has, the world was never supposed to be like this. This was never supposed to happen to human beings. And he enters and he experiences what this woman's going through from the inside. He's on the inside. Not an observer looking at this woman. He's on the inside of this woman's pain. And the reason this is so, so very, very important is, is because it's knowing that he's on the inside and seeing the beauty of his willingness to get involved, enmeshed in the pain of our life, even in the pain that we bring on ourselves, sometimes through our our bad decisions. But it's knowing that he's on the inside and he will not leave that brings healing into our life. It's the power of his love we prayed this morning and we sang this morning, the power of his love, the love expressed by a compassion that knows no limits. It's that power that heals us, that restores us, that brings healing to our wounds. It's one of the reasons why I think it's so important that we have times of prayer where we just invite Jesus in on memories and let Jesus be in solidarity with us. If nothing else, meant to experience the pain alongside of us so we know that he was always there. Here's a picture of me and my family when I was one and a half years old. I'm the little boy on my dad's lap there. Someone said that I look like my dad. Do I look like my dad a little bit there? All right, yeah, he is pretty good looking, I guess. <laughs> and there, there's me on my dad's lap and my brother Chris and my older sister Debbie and my littlest uh, sister uh, Anita. And I've got the expression I pretty much had all my life, which is, what's going on? <laughs> what, what, what? I never really had a clue. I, I'm still kind of in that world. And that's my mother, Arlisle. Uh, th- th- this is the last picture that I have of uh, my mom. Um, she was 33 in that picture, and she died six weeks after this photo was taken. And, I, you know, I, and I've spoken about her before here, um, and that had an impact on my life. I don't know all the re- ramifications it had. I, I know they told me that I, I, I couldn't let her go. I kept on asking. Uh, it, it was almost eerie. Uh, how I would say, when's mom mom coming home? When's mom coming home? And um, they would always say, mom's not coming home. Uh, The angels took her. And and I don't know if it's it's wise to to tell little kids that because I grew up with this weird thing about angels. It's like, I don't know if I like, maybe they're all demons, you know. um, But I could not accept that my mom wasn't coming home and I just asked it over and over again. I don't know all the implications that that had for my life. I know I grew up with a kind of a weird uh, obsession with death and I'm sure that this has something to do with it. It just made such an impact on me. As a little kid, I remember thinking if we die, then I would think that'd be the most important thing to talk about and no one talks about this. It always struck me as odd that no one talks about dying. When it seems like if we die, then there's really nothing else worth talking about. At a really young age, I remember thinking that. And then I felt like I had some kind of a secret that, I, that like maybe people don't know that we die, and I do know it. I felt like it was my, I felt like it was my secret. Honestly, I have a memory. It is one, it is so I remember every detail about this memory. It was a class, second grade, St. Patrick's School in Ohio, Catholic School. And I remember I had trouble talking. I stuttered really bad back then. And so I would often know the answer to a question, raise my hand, the teacher would call on me, and I would just stutter. And the kids would laugh, and they all thought I was really stupid because I would keep on trying to answer questions, but I couldn't. And one time I remember I raised my hand and the teacher reluctantly called on me because more often than not, she knew what would happen. And I did my stuttering kind of thing, couldn't get a word out. And um, she was kind of embarrassed for me and the kids all laugh. And I remember looking around the class. I can, just, I can see that little Amy girl that I, was kind of cute, but, but she was such a goody two-shoes, I, I really didn't like her very much. And we all had these uniforms, these green plaid uniforms. And then I remember thinking to myself, you guys all think I'm stupid, but I know that you're all stupid, because I know that we die. And therefore, this discussion doesn't really matter. I, I am so serious. Second grade. That's scary. <laughs> I future mass murderer here or something. Yeah? I, I was a second grade existential nihilist, you know, I was like... But I, I grew up with, with just being very aware of, uh, of, of, uh, of death. But see, now, now I have times where, and it's, it, it's, a, it's been an important part of my growth, where in times of prayer, I put on some music, darken the room, and I just see Jesus coming to that little Greg, sitting in my dad's lap, and see him hold that little Greg, and sometimes see him cry over the pain that this little kid could not possibly process. Um, and mourn over the loss of, of uh, his mother and mourn over some of the implications that that will have in his life, just to enter into the pain of that because it's set in motion a lot of things that really affected a lot of lives. And, and, and Jesus was there. He was there. He, he, he experienced what I, as a one-and-a-half-year-old, was going through as well as the rest of my siblings, as well as my dad. Um, he knows what that's like from the inside. And I see Jesus, you know, promising that he'll always be there. He can't promise me that he'll always be able to prevent, keep me from harm. Because I'm 50 now, and I know that that, he, he can't make that promise. In a world where there's free agents, a lot of things can happen that aren't supposed to happen. But he does promise that he'll always be there. He always has been there. And he'll always be at work to bring healing. And he'll always be at work to bring good out of evil. And see, as I can see, amen, as I can see Jesus loving on me like that and, and at, at different stages of my life, just, just, just entering into whatever pain I had, experiencing it from the inside more intensely than I did. What, that's the power of his love that brings healing into our life. It collapses every suspicion I might have that maybe God really is a, more of a Caesar stoic deity just kind of gazing down at me from heaven. And see, it's a lot of times it's the trauma of those memories that causes us to draw the conclusion that I did, that I'm all alone in this world. Ain't nobody looking out for me. And, and just to know that he was there on the inside of the pain brings healing into our life. He's, he's there. He's always been there on the inside. When you lost your child... He was there on the inside of that pain. He felt what you felt in a perfect form. When your dad abandoned you, he was on the inside of that event, on the inside of your pain in that moment. When your spouse left you, when you were told about the terminal illness that you've had to struggle with, he's on the inside of that pain, even on stuff that you brought on yourself when you blew your world apart because of your meth addiction, when you got pregnant and you shouldn't have got pregnant, and then you got an abortion and the psychological trauma that that happened, the devil will accuse you and condemn you, but you got to know that Jesus is on the inside of that pain, wanting to bring healing, wanting to bring restoration, wanting to turn even that to your advantage and the advantage of the kingdom. It's so healthy to just have a memory, dare to go back. Sometimes it's hard because we block stuff out of our mind. But go back to a memory and then just introduce Jesus into the memory and let him show his outrageous, magnificent, unimprovable, unfathomable, beautiful compassion and love towards you as he enters into solidarity with you and bring healing into your life. Maybe there's a part of you that will will wonder, am I just making this up? Oh, this is just me pretending because we've been indoctrinated with some weird stuff about our imagination ask yourself this question was Jesus in fact there when you went through what you went through and the answer is yes he's the lord so then I'll ask yourself this question what is more accurate to have a memory where you remember the event without Jesus being there or to have a memory where you remember the event with Jesus being there what you find is the second memory is more accurate Because as a matter of fact it's a very important detail you've been deleting for a long time Jesus was there and Jesus' compassion was there and it will do you really a world of good to include that fact in all of your memories I want to end this way I'm going to encourage you to spend time on your own just inviting Jesus in on having having dates with Jesus where you invite him in to just show his beauty but I want to do that for three minutes right now close your eyes And Holy Spirit, bring to our minds a memory. It doesn't have to be a really traumatic one. It can be just an unpleasant one. But ask Jesus to show his true love and compassion towards you in that memory. And Holy Spirit, heal your people by the power of your love.